0: You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ Family of Churches,
1: worshiping God in L.A. since 1989.
0: Thank you very much. That was awesome. No turning back. All things new. Welcome to 2021 West Side. Um, We're starting this incredible series on uh, really finding our place in his story and I want us to not, this is going to be some deep stuff. Uh, we're going to have uh, great teachers. Um, but I want us to be more than just a church that's, uh, getting head knowledge. And I want us to be an enchanted church, uh, the spirit moving, uh, miracles happening. Um, it's important for us to connect with God in all kinds of ways. I don't know if you've written your psalm yet that we're, we're working on psalms that we're submitting there. I pray you do that. We we want to connect uh multiple ways with the Lord and um looking forward to seeing how that all works out. Um okay, so today uh we are going to start part 1 of our series and today's really going to be a a broad stroke of really the first 1500 years of church history. Back in June, I had um back in May I actually had John Oaks, Dr. John Oaks do uh, this broad stroke for us, but because of how God really reoriented our thinking, uh, needing to focus on justice and social issues and the concerns that went on, we we held off on it. And so what I've done is um, I, I recorded what he said, and, and I've added some in, and what we're going to do is we're going to get a—today we're going to hear from John Oaks uh, from the lesson he did. I've got that embedded in, so you're going to get to see some of the insights there, and we really want us to just get a big picture, and then we're going to really drill down into sort of our more practical uh, historical roots as we get to hear from Dr. Dougherty uh, the next two weeks. So I'm going to share my screen, and I want to urge you to, um, you know, be ready. We're going to move quick uh, through everything, and uh, we're going to get to hear a little bit from uh, from Dr. Oakes as well uh, through this whole event. So here we go. All right, uh, Kenny talked a little bit about the series, and I want to begin um, sharing right here just uh, this, this verse from Acts chapter um, 13, and this to me is a theme verse because of how it relates to the idea of what the importance of history is, and so I've, I've trimmed it down a little, but I want to start in verse 16 where it says, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me.'" And he's going to go into some history. He says, the God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And he goes on and leads up into the story of the gospel of what Jesus did and how Jesus had died for their sin and had resurrected. And he's bringing them into the stories, bringing it current. And as he concludes, he says in verse 36, he says, Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends... I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. He uses history to bring them into the narrative of God. And I loved history. I got my degree from UCLA in history uh, in 1990. Uh, it was more economic history. I wrote a paper on, econ- interestingly, I wrote a paper on the uh, comparing the 1929 stock market crash to the 1987 crash. And there's been other crashes since then, of course, many, but... Uh, you know, as I became a minister, I stayed invested, loved history, got, got my master's in uh, missional leadership from Rochester, uh, and certainly understood the importance of the narrative, uh, message that God gives us through the scriptures. And really what I really want all of us to understand is that each of us gets to play a role in that narrative history. Each of us plays a tremendous role in the overall plan of God. And so really what I'm hoping for today is that, um, that God will really move in our hearts and help us to figure out how do we really fit in to the grand plan? What is God's plan for each of us? And hold on a moment here. All right, yeah. All right. Got a little technical difficulty for some reason. Okay, sorry. Oh, my computer has frozen up. Yeah, I'm frozen. I hear you Yes. Hi. Hold on a moment, guys. I can't find my cursor. Sorry guys. It's weird. Hmm. It did freeze out. Yeah, it's frozen. Hold on, guys. Hold on a moment here. Can you exit. Out of yeah, the I room? might. Hold on, the guys. screen maybe. Yeah, I can't even oh, find I my cursor. Go. Yeah, I've. Wait there. Yeah, it's weird. Look up there.
1: There, I got it.
0: No. Oh, darn, sorry. Did you exit out? Am I on there? I am. Okay, good. You guys can hear me, I'm assuming. And so. We
1: can't see that.
0: Okay, so I need to reshare the screen. Hold on a moment here. All right. Let me give me a second. Little snafu here. That was weird. All right. There. All right, you guys got me? Mhm. All right. So, the point is each of us needs to find our place in the story, just as David understood he had a mission in his uh place in God's plan. And today what we're going to hit on, of course, is uh, a lot of this material is coming from John Oakes, and I want to urge you to go to his Evidence for Christianity website, um, and you'll see he has a, a, a mountain of evidence, and he did a 57 minutes church history for us on there, specifically for the West region. So I really want to hold him up, appreciate all that he has done. So why do we study church history? Well, yes, to find our place in the grand narrative uh, of God's uh, tapestry for the human race. Uh, also, what we learn is the mistakes of history enable us to avoid them in the future, hopefully. We don't always do that, but that's the hope. Uh, those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Um, you know, the big thing, too, is as you hear the story of the Restoration Movement, the campus ministry, and the ICOC in the coming weeks, it'll a lot of things that we currently do will make a lot of sense to you. And one of the big things is we avoid swinging the pendulum uh, when we understand history and how it has been swung in the past. Uh, there's there's a, a balance of polarities. Polarity management is a big part of life. We did multiple lessons last year on the tension. We live between the ages. Jesus has resurrected and ascended. He's proven there is uh, an age to come. There is eternity, uh, that the kingdom of God is from heaven, but... All things don't make sense right now, Turns it won't all be put together perfectly. So there's a lot of uh, competing concepts that we're going to have to wrestle with that God puts us in. And it's important for us to not swing the pendulum too far any direction, whether it's um, becoming overly charismatic, emotional. I know for me and many of us uh, in the Churches of Christ, we reacted to the charismatic movement and became very intellectual, uh, very, very uh, doctrine oriented. And we don't want to overreact one way or the other. I think um, you'll see in history that's happened multiple times. And so we we avoid swinging the pendulum too far by seeing how it's been done in the past and gaining wisdom from history. So I want to begin with uh, the early church and really something very inspiring that went on. And that is that the early church evangelized the known world in their day. And you find this passage in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus tells them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, you had the apostles were from really the same area of Judea, uh, a small town, right? Galileans. And yet they're given this incredible vision to not only evangelize all of Jerusalem, our challenge is to evangelize all of L.A., but we're part of a movement that is all over the world. Um, uh, the ICOC has churches all over the world, over 700 churches. And we, we've been called to the same mission just as these early apostles were. And you can imagine that they were, um, challenged by this calling from Jesus, right? They thought, what? We're going to go to Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Many of them had not traveled more than a hundred miles from where they were born. So the bottom line is it's very inspiring as you look at the history of the early church and what they did. And how they changed the world, and I want to begin just with that little uh, encouragement. Um, really appreciated how John had put some of these thoughts together. And the idea is, how did they do it? How did this ragtag band of uneducated people evangelize the world? And the first thing is, they were—it was noticed that they had been with Jesus. They were people. Uh, that had been with Jesus. They knew Jesus. The personal effect of the man Jesus really changed things. And as we deeply connect with Jesus, as He and His ways and His actions and His love, loving like He loves, makes a huge difference. Um, certainly, His resurrection, the, the truth claims of what happened, um, the things that we see, He resurrected from the dead, and there was empirical evidence, and over 500 people. Uh, saw him after his resurrection and there was an energy. Uh, he had appeared to them over over 40 days teaching about the kingdom of God. It says in Acts 1. And so if, if Jesus, you'd seen him die, seen him resurrect and hung out with him for a month and a half, you would have an energy. However, that was probably not enough to sustain a worldwide, to sustain a worldwide movement. And so if you think about it, how did they do it? Well, I think there's a couple things that we can learn from. They, Christians certainly had a moral ethical superiority in, in that day and age, a day of um, uh, really worshipping multiple gods. I mean, the Christians were called atheists because they only worshipped one god, Jesus, um, in early Rome. And the, clearly the, the the Jewish moral ethic was respected in that generation. Um, and then the example and the actual lifestyle of the Christians began to to shine. They were certainly a city on a hill. Uh, they were a light that could not be put out. Um, they really not only was their moral stance, their love, uh, an incredible influence, but they answered the hard questions. You know, in Christianity, they didn't shy away. We learn about the Apostle Paul going into, you know, the Areopagus and and speaking and dealing with some of the most complex issues. And the Christians had the answer to the meaning of life. So. That's going to help when we have the answer to the big questions and Christians don't shy away from the big questions. Uh, that begins to win hearts. Uh, number five, Christianity gave dignity to all people. Uh, the church had com- compassion like no one else. Certainly, uh, gospel writer Luke talked about how Jesus had a heart for the marginalized uh, women, uh, those on the outskirts. Um, he he made special emphasis to help the sick, the poor. Uh, he 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 had a special emphasis to help those outside the Jewish community and what you see is that um that kind of unconditional love made an incredible difference and began to resonate in the world uh, and certainly acts 5:39 you know god was with them he he the spirit was there and they evangelized the world in their generation so it can be done can can it be done again i believe it can uh i'm hoping that all of us believe that as well and my hope is that as a church we we will uh see some incredible victories uh in the years to come but so we want to just put us in um sort of in context where we are in 2021 but we got to start at the beginning so here we go all right so the question you have is how is true christianity lost what um What's one of the effects? How do, how do we lose this early church that started? And there's two primary ways. One is the growth of splinter heretical groups with false teachings. And a series of those grew up, and we're going to hear John talk about some of those. Uh, and they developed for a variety of reasons. Um, but then also with that, there's a drift of the true church from biblical practice, usually to come, really combat those heretical false teachings. You'll institute a practice that protects against a bad teaching, but then it becomes um, uh, you cause it causes a drift. It actually begins to change your doctrine because the practice begins to change it, and you see that going on a lot. We're going to talk in detail a little bit about that. But two concepts: orthodoxy and orthopraxy, and heterodoxy and heteropraxy. The idea that. Um, you know, orthodoxy is this accepted, authorized doctrine, and orthopraxy is accepted and authorized practice. How do you live the way God and how Jesus wants? He's He's ultimately the definer of of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. But heterodoxy is deviated from that, and and all kinds of issues pop up in the church and have and will again and occur, and we're all we can all succumb to this in various ways. So certainly this fits in with 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your di- life and doctrine closely, persevere in them. This has been a challenge since the earliest days, and we're going to see in history all kinds of challenges that arise out of it. Um, and like I mentioned, almost all examples of of uh, going off track and drift from orthopraxy, which again is the right practice, uh, they start out as reasonable and seemingly wise responses to a real problem. Uh, it could be anything we institute to just help us stay within the guidelines that we believe really help us walk with God. Uh, But then those very practices, when they become sort of codified and solidified um, and and too dogmatic, they can lead to drift from really the heart. Of course, Jesus talked about that as well. Uh, Irenaeus said he uh, one of the things, he's an early church father, defended against heresy using church tradition, the rule of faith, and the authority of apostolic succession. So we're going to hear from John right now, and he's going to get us into a little bit. Uh, we're going to hear from him uh, regarding some of the um, uh, actual heresies. So let's, let's listen to John, and he's going to explain in detail some of the heresies that developed in the first century, first couple centuries.
1: Some of the uh, heresies that came into the church. Uh, there, there are a number of them you can see on the screen. Uh, the first thing is Judaizers came in. And so, what happened is that the grace we have in Christ was hijacked. And people uh, uh, allowed themselves to get caught up into um, law keeping and salvation by works and that kind of stuff. In fact, uh, there's two books in the New Testament written specifically to oppose that. That would be Galatians and arguably Colossians as well. Uh, another heresy is the Ebionites. This was mainly Jewish Christians uh I, in fact uh you you're aware that the jerusalem was destroyed in 70 a.d and the church went to Pella, and there a group developed that denied the deity of jesus and they said that jesus is, is just a man all right and so that's another heresy that came in uh ignatius talked about the judaizers he said It is... Ignatius was a bishop in the very early second century. He says, it is monstrous to talk of Jesus Christ as as to live like a Jew. About the Abionites, Eusebius said, they considered him a plain and common man and justified only by his advances in virtue. You know what? We have both going on today. We have groups that basically say Jesus was just a man. We have Unitarian Universalists and others. Uh, and then another group, you've you probably heard of them, is the Gnostics. And these Gnostics uh, basically taught that physical things are bad. And Jesus didn't really have a body. It he, he, he basically was just a spirit who occupied a body. And Gnosticism is dealt with in the New Testament. In fact, the book of 1 John was written specifically to oppose a form of Gnosticism. That's why uh, well, John said, him who we, we saw and we touched. He talked about the fact that we touched him. And so they they pulled mystery religions in, and they tried to spiritualize Jesus and make him not be human, but we understand Jesus to be fully human and fully God. Yes, and so uh, you've probably heard of the Gospel of Thomas and maybe the Gospel of Judas, and these were Gnostic works. So that was another heresy that came up in the church. Uh, another heresy was um, Docetism, which is a little bit like Gnosticism. Uh, to, the, the, the Greek word for dositism basically says to appear. And so basically they argue that Jesus just appeared to be a physical person. And they argue that at his baptism, the physical person Jesus essentially was occupied by this uh, the spiritual reality of Jesus. So they des- again, they're de- denying his physical, his human nature. Uh, uh, another... Uh, group that came in in the in, in the mid second century is the Montanists. This this is a very interesting group. The Montanists basically what happened is by the middle of, of the second century, there was a fair amount of worldliness in the church, and and uh, by maybe modern standards not too bad. And so Montanus, and he had a, a couple of uh, of women, Maximilia and Prisca, and so they started saying we have modern day prophecy. And they had speaking in tongues, and and basically it was a charismatic movement. And this church, uh, this group, was more uh, holy, um, you know, by average than really the mainstream church. So a number of conservative Christians were attracted to that. You might have heard of a guy named Tertullian. Uh, he is the, the the Christian who invented the word Trinity, and Tertullian, who was one of the greatest theologians and leaders of the early church. He actually became part of the Montanists. So they had charismatic Christianity in the second century, and uh, sort of present-day sort of new revelation and people saying whatever kind of came into their head, as if that's uh, you know for, uh, biblical. And so of course we have something like that. Uh, another group. This is interesting. In the, in the third century, in the third century, there was a horrendous persecution under Galerian and a couple other of the of the emperors. And at that time, uh, this is when uh, Christians were ordered, especially leaders, were ordered to go and offer a sacrifice and and uh, to, to burn some incense and, and you know, basically to worship the pagan god of Rome. And um, and so there were some that, that actually did that. And the question is, what are we going to do about that? And so some said those people can never be members of the church again. They were the purest. And basically, this was the vision on discipleship. They divided over whether so, what level of discipleship is acceptable to Christianity? Another heresy was the Arian heresy. This is in the, uh, in the uh, early fourth century. And these were people denied not the physical nature of Jesus, but they de- denied the deity of Jesus. So there were many heresies. Now, ne- next I want to talk about uh, the, the tendency to drift. I-, I think this is more of a, of a, a problem for us. And, and what we're going to find out is, All these tendencies to drift away from New Testament teaching were done for an initial good reason, usually to prevent the other problem, which is heresy. All right. So generally what will happen is the church will develop practices that are not wrong. They're not sinful, but they're not wise. And they should only be accepted for a period of time for a specific purpose because of perhaps an attack on the church. And so uh, some of the areas we'll talk about is, is church discipline, church organization, baptism, asceticism, creeds, priesthood, sacerdotalism, the tendency to have sacraments. I, I don't have time to talk about all these. I can barely mention them, but I'll mention a couple. Uh, for, for example, let's talk about drift in the area of church organization. So the early church, let me see, I think I have a slide on that. No, I don't. So the early church was led by evangelists. And then by the second half of the first century, it was led by evangelists and elders. And then by the time you get to the early second century, what happened was evangelists had a very, very limited role. There's no evidence of evangelists even being involved. What happened is you had a head bishop and then the elders. Now, why did they do that? Because of heresy. What would happen is if you had one head bishop, if heretical teaching came into the church, what they would do is they'd replace the bishop and they'd save the church. Great idea. Not biblical. And so eventually what you got is a head bishop. And then you got a head bishop over the other bishops. You had an archbishop. And the archbishop would be the bishop of a major church. And that tr- that bishop would be over the tr- the bishops in the smaller churches. And slowly but surely a very strong hierarchical structure devolved in the church. That could never happen to us. Oh, oh wait. Yeah, it actually did, didn't it? And then eventually you had metropolitans, and then you had, um, popes. And slowly but surely what happened is the local flavor of churches being led by, 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 um, elders and evangelists completely disappeared. So that's one form of drift. Again though, the initial steps in that direction were actually probably a wise thing given the circumstance. Okay, another example of, of drift is in the doctrine of baptism. So, of course, you know what was taught in the early church, uh, Acts 2, uh, 36 through 41. But what happened is, by the end of the first century, they had these things called catechumens. Now, a catechumen was a student preparing for baptism. And so they would have them wait for three months, for six months. They'd have prescribed prayers, and they'd have to, they'd have to, to recite a creed. And, um, and then, first of all, what they'd do is they'd baptize them, Actually, they baptized them three times, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then they would anoint them with oil. And eventually they taught that you receive the Holy Spirit when you're anointing. That's called christening. You've heard of that, perhaps. And then, so you receive forgiveness of sins when you're baptized, but you receive the Holy Spirit with oil. And then eventually people uh, would start, sometimes even wait until on their deathbed, because they began to teach that baptism only forgives original sin. Oh, we got to talk about how you got original sin as well. It's another drift away from New Testament teaching. And eventually, by the end of the third century, people were saying, you know what? we got a baby. we got plague. Let's just baptize them. And eventually, baptism became like magic, just sort of abracadabra. And faith was completely removed from, the, from, the, from salvation itself. Drift. The initial stage involved something that kind of made sense. Why did they do this catechumen and and this creeds and all that kind of stuff? Because the church was under severe persecution. And there were spies coming into the church. And this was a wise thing. I I wish I had time to talk about uh, how they uh, slowly drifted into priesthood and separation between clergy and laity, which could never happen to us, right? Oh, I think it's already happened to a pretty significant extent. And how basically the church became very formal and had a church calendar. And they began to uh, raise the martyrs and, and worship and venerate saints. All these things happened very, very gradually. And in every single case, what started as a reasonable practice became something that eventually led, ultimately, I believe, to them lo- losing it almost entirely. So let me let me... Uh, end this little section by talking about some some lessons from the early church. First of all, we need to uh, avoid convenient but unscriptural organizational structure. Got that? Second of all, we need to resist the tendency towards over-ritualization in our worship and through regular people taking real part in the actual worship. We, don't, we should not avoid overreacting to false doctrines We need to be careful about relying on creeds to maintain our faith. We shouldn't overemphasize physical sacrifice to the point that people no longer be able to experience the basic pleasures of life. We need to to avoid uh, the clergy laity situation. We need to stress good Bible exegesis.
0: Amen. Okay, so a lot of material there to kick off the early days, and I want to, right now what we want to do, Westside, is we've built um, these house church connections between our small groups, our our campus, our single, and our married uh, family groups. If you're visiting today, welcome. It's great to have you a part of it. If you don't know which house church you go to, you could just stay in the main room, but right now we're going to take 10 minutes. I wanted just to give everybody a chance, and not all of you are going to get to share in your group, but a few of you will. Why do you think knowing church history is valuable? I want you to engage a little bit in the house church setting. House church leaders, uh, please, you know, help run the, the, the call. But here's what's going to happen. You just get to choose your own uh, your own breakout right now. So that's what we're going to do is I'm going to break us out. And um, here we go. All right. Please pick the, the group that you – uh-oh. Yeah, go ahead and pick, pick your, if you look, uh, you'll see the, um at the very bottom of the list, you'll see all the, uh, house churches. And if you know which one you're in, just go ahead and click on that one. If you're not sure which one you're in, you could, you could randomly pick one that people you like, <laughs> or you could stay here in the main room. So let's take a few moments and talk about why is knowing church history valuable. All right. Well, this is the first time we've tried this on Zoom, guys, this new feed. I hope you had some discussion. Uh, It's good to see everybody. So we're gonna we're gonna run quick now through some um, some history. We're gonna end in the Reformation, and then um, next week we're gonna pick up really with the Restoration movement. And um, but we're gonna go through basically 1500s right here in the Reformation. A broad broad stroke. We're not we're not gonna hit all that. We're gonna hit some specific stuff that does relate a little to some of the things we see in different churches where doctrinal stuff has originated from. Uh, some names you've probably seen in history. We're not going to go super in depth, but I want you to see some of it. Again, if you want to get more in depth, you can go to uh Dr. John Oakes uh on his Evidence for Christianity website. Has uh he has actually a 12-hour series you can watch on uh really what we're covering here pretty quick. So uh if you really want to do that, it's fantastic. We want to keep educating ourselves. So, all right, we're gonna go back into the um the keynote and um we're going to dig in now to the first, uh, you know, the fourth and fifth centuries, third and you know, third and fourth centuries. You had the persecutions really were very severe under Decius and, and Valerian, uh, under Diocletian. Um, severe persecution of the Christians. I, you know, I always say that true disciples of Jesus really weren't going to fake their commitment. Or wouldn't say, hey, I'm a Christian just to fit in when they risked being, uh, you know, sent to the arena and thrown to the lions. They, were, they weren't going to uh, uh, give lip service, typically, when death was on the line. And this brought up one of the heresies we talked about. Uh, a lot of the Christians did not actually stand their ground uh, when asked to give, you know, to say Caesar is Lord. They did. They said Caesar is Lord and, instead of dying. And... Um, But they, you know, we don't know all the circumstances. You can read about some of them in in, in historical accounts. But a problem arose in the church if you gave into emperor worship, if you did not stand your ground because you're going to die. Um, But then later you felt bad, you repented, and and later you go, hey, I want to rejoin the church, or the persecution quieted down, and now it wasn't such a big deal, and you wanted to rejoin the church. Uh, That was a major challenge in the early church. because then what do you do with that? Some people lost their life, lost their family members, others didn't. And then how did you accept them back into the church? Uh I think ultimately the church chose to uh, the forgiveness uh, by and large uh was the rule. But there was questions on whether they could ever lead, they could ever be a, a leader of the church. And again, they felt like, um, you know, the I think. There's a lot of history on it, but the story is that many times they did allow through grace that they let them back in. It, but it's a challenging thing you can only imagine. Now, of course, Christianity took a major turn with the Edict of Milan in 313, which is the toleration of Christianity became uh, accepted, persecution was eliminated, and Constantine became, you know, a pseudo-Christian, um uh, Emperor of Rome, and what he did is he he basically legalized and made Christianity the the Christian religion of Rome, and now it was now popular to become a Christian. It was uh, almost like citizenship, and uh, Christendom began. It was this world of uh, the the state and the religious leadership began to merge. Uh, many people thought it was fantastic. You know, membership swelled, but of course, then an apostasy occurred. Because it was now popular, because it was now accepted, um, then people would pay lip service, and then the, uh, you know, you 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 might have had. You, there was great challenge with the things of orthopraxy uh, and orthodoxy, of course. Orthodoxy uh, was tried was held together through the various creeds that were were created to hold people to certain standards, uh, but of course the practice was hard to maintain. And Christendom, in many ways, created the falling away of I think true Christianity, true discipleship, giving up all things for Jesus and His mission. When you're when it's popular or you can get a political position, um, it, it begins to pollute our faith, and we've seen that in history in many many ways. Um, so, a couple of key figures in the early days: uh, Augustine, uh, one of the uh, the great early writers, uh, taught on. Uh, really crystallized this idea of the sovereignty of God maybe overemphasized the sovereignty of God as the nature one of the key natures of God and it led to some thinking that later influenced influenced Calvin quite heavily uh Zwingli quite heavily uh this idea of total pro- depravity uh uh Uh, which means, uh, monaragism, which means really only, only God is involved. Only God is involved. There's no human component to salvation. There's nothing you can do about it. Predestination. Um, infant baptism arose through uh, some of these teachings because now, uh, it's just by grace. It's only, it's only God. Uh, faith got eliminated. Of course, the, the plagues had something to do with it and other issues, but, um, Augustine had a tremendous influence, still has a tremendous influence on uh, theology um, uh, Fourth, you know, fifth centuries and is, is referenced quite heavily in many ways. Um, there was another guy, uh, Pelagius, uh, who really believed that there was a component to free will in our salvation process. Um, was it work salvation? Uh, it, it, it's it's again that polarity concept, the tension of. Uh, of truth and grace, the tension of God gives us a free gift, but there's an expectation that we give our hearts to God, that we surrender, that we receive it through a choice of our own. And that makes it no less free, but there's a human choice involved. And that, that in many ways, maybe if some would say uh, that's a little bit of our origin, I think theologically, Church of Christ, we believe there's a choice, that it's God's grace, but a choice is made by us. So, um oops. What happened there sorry about that That's odd Oops, sorry guys. lost my powerPoint by kicking clicking on the the Pelagious thing and went to Wikipedia, so give me a second, guys apologize for that um. Let me pull it back up here. Here we go. All right, here we go. Okay, so where was true Christianity as the church sort of apostatized, as it crystallized into uh, an institution? Um, There were examples, even as it became an institution with power and Christendom reigned, and therefore the motivation to have a heart that's totally surrendered to Jesus, even to, to the point of death, no longer exists in the world of, of Christendom. But you still had those that, that did. You had the Polisians. Uh, the Albings, uh, Albigenses and the Cathars from France were in the, the thousand, thousand to two thousand, twelve uh, hundreds. Um, you had the Waldensians. You had examples, many examples through the ages of those that risked their life and great persecution occurred. Uh, many, many deaths. Usually Jesus said, if you're going to live a faithful life in Christ Jesus, uh, Paul said that you will be persecuted and you know, Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And through the ages, you'll find that. There were many faithful disciples of Jesus through the generations. Uh, scriptures talk about a remnant, and certainly you can find examples of that throughout the Middle Ages. Of course, you do have the idea of monasticism occurring because people felt like they needed to go away from the establishment in order to be faithful because institutions cause an unfaithfulness when you're trying to please the state as opposed to a please Jesus. Uh, okay, so I want to fast forward to the Reformation because it's it's pertinent, um, and several key figure, figures I want to talk about. We're going to hear a little bit here in a few minutes from John. He's going to go through a couple things. Here's some key people. John Wycliffe, uh, John Huss, uh, reformers, the Catholic Church. Of course, we're not getting into the, the great divide between the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, which occurred uh, uh, in the 11th century. But um, you've got these reformers trying to reform this institutionalized christian world and i want to talk briefly about that and then i have in there the, the printing press of course is right smack dab in the middle here in 1455 it, it 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 makes a tremendous difference in the reformation uh john Wycliffe um you know translated the the uh, latin vulgate into english uh first translation into english uh, the Catholic Church had be, had, had degraded to the, uh, degraded to the point where uh, part of forgiveness was you could pay indulgences, which meant you would you would actually do uh, deeds or or even pay money to be forgiven of sins. All your sins from baptism were forgiven uh, before that, but afterwards you had to do things. this is a big part of history. I haven't learned this, and you learn this through all u s history on world history. Classes, rather, uh, I learned it in like eighth grade. Indulgences are a great abuse, um, and and really were a prelude to the Reformation. Uh, to pay money to priests to be forgiven, obviously against the heart and message of Jesus. Um, John Wycliffe, um, you know, he said the Pope is the Antichrist. He actually did not get severely persecuted; he didn't die from persecution. But later, they the, the Catholic Church dug up, dug up his body and burned it. Uh, burned his bones, which is interesting based on the things he had said. Uh, another reformer was John Huss uh, in Bohemia, and he was in, influenced by Wycliffe, uh, certainly taught that the Bible was the only authority. There weren't a lot of copies of the Bible. Of course, the printing press hadn't been written yet, uh, but he was teaching uh, accurately. Only God can forgive sin. So, again, indulgences don't work. Uh, he was burned at the stake. And uh the Hussite uh, movement that developed from his teaching uh really were wiped out by the Inquisition that because the institution of church and state had merged together, if you spoke against the institution of the church, uh the, the inquisition you you would be killed. Um, so terrible. He was burned at the stake. You see these you know these examples. there are examples through history of great reformers. Um again, I want to reiterate to all of us that in fourteen fifty five the printing press. Of course, the first thing printed on it was the Bible, and uh, mass production of the Bible, putting it into the hands of the common man, began to create this wave of enlightenment and a spiritual awakening, and you have the Reformation. Um, of course, this is very, very broad brushstrokes. One of the key figures in the Reformation is Martin Luther, of course. We've all heard of Martin Luther, and he got famous for for coming up with 95 theses that he put on the, uh, the door of the Wittenberg uh, Chapel, and um, it went you know it kind of went viral in that day and martin luther was uh really studied the augustinian concepts and that filtered into his teaching quite heavily again the idea of total depravity uh and and uh the sovereignty of god and not uh you know man made rules in, in in for salvation of course faith only grace only became his his big message and, and he was swinging the pendulum against Catholicism uh, in terms of um, uh, the authority and and sort of the, uh, the 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 practices that that eliminated faith. And he might have swung it too far um, to where faith only, faith only. And even uh, you know you you study the history, he didn't like the book of James because he talked about uh, what good is is faith without deeds, and he called it a, a book of straw. Uh, but he did keep many of the Catholic worship practices. Lutheran. My mom, uh, born in Germany, is Lutheran. Many of the the basic ritualism, the robes, and the stained glass windows that's common for uh, Lutheranism as well. But uh, but Lutheran Luther is a hero of the Reformation in, in, in many ways. But as well, doctrinally, some of the, the some of his message still filters into um, modern day Christianity quite heavily in ways that aren't accurate. Um, okay, Ul- Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, I want to have John talk about Zwingli a little bit. He's a Swiss reformer and maybe more radical than Luther. Uh, the idea in, in uh, uh, for, the, for the Swiss was, you know, let's get rid of the stained glass windows. Let's pare things down. Let's keep it simple. Four bare walls and a sermon. And and he as well was influenced quite heavily by Augustine and this idea of, of total depravity. But let's hear John talk some I think some insightful things doctrinally that came up. Uh let's listen right now.
1: And again, so he, he was Augustinian in many ways. Uh he and Martin Luther disagreed on very few doctrines, actually. But one of them was the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Martin Luther, I'm going to say he believed in transubstantiation. That's actually not completely correct. He believed it didn't literally transform into the actual blood and and bread, but it was spiritually transformed, although not physically transformed. And Ulrich Zwingli believed that um, basically it was just uh, the the Lord's Supper was uh, a remembrance. So, um, and, you know, Jesus says, eat, this is my body. And there's a famous meeting where the two met, and basically Martin Luther put a line in the sand. He says, hey, Jesus says, eat, this is my body, I believe it. And Ulrich Zwingli said, no, 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 what it means is, this is like my body. Now, we agree with Ulrich Zwingli, don't we? Yes, our doctrine of the Lord's Supper is that of Ulrich Zwingli. And really, as far as I know, he's the first person to teach that. All right, now, but, you know, it's it's worth asking, might there be something, you know, is might there be some spiritual participation of the Holy Spirit in this Lord's Supper rather than merely a remembrance, Something to think about. Maybe maybe Martin Luther wasn't completely wrong, but either way, they refused to cooperate and they, they pronounced each other heretics. A disaster for the Protestant movement. Uh, anyway... Um, very important to note. Again, most of the Christianity in this practice today comes directly from Zwingli and and Calvin. And he made a very important point here, which is a problem. Which is, he said, baptism is merely a symbol. Basically, what what uh, Zwingli said is, baptism is to Christianity what circumcision is to Judaism. And therefore, baptism is merely a symbol of what God has already done. And you could argue that is essentially what circumcision is. And it's worth noting that the New Testament does make a connection between circumcision and baptism. For example, in Colossians chapter 2. But basically, Ulrich Wingley was the first person in history to teach that baptism is an act which is a symbol of something that God has already done. Well, there you go. So where did that come from? Over with Zwingli. So when you're, when somebody, when you have a discussion with somebody about that, you can say that doctrine didn't even exist until the 16th century. There's no record of anybody teaching baptism is merely a symbol. All right. So that's worth noting.
0: Okay. So I wanted you to hear, um, John talk a little bit about that with baptism that Zwingli, uh, was the first to talk about it simply a symbol, which we, you know, we, we believe it's, it's more than a symbol. It's, it's the, you know, it's the time we participate in the death, burial and resurrection where we connect with the blood of Jesus. And of course, uh, that concept of it's when you're saved, uh, really existed all the way up until Zwingli began to promote, uh, you know, this idea that it's a symbol. Uh, you know, his, his radicalness helped influence the Anabaptists though, who, who we're going to talk about next, um, that as well as John Calvin, we're going to talk about John Calvin and we're going to close out here in a few minutes, but I want to hit these last couple ones and, and, and John's going to share a little bit about this as well. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk about the Anabaptist movement. This movement, um, is quite radical, uh, T- terribly persecuted martyred uh by Protestants and Catholics alike um and they really did believe in making disciples uh who as adults you make an adult decision to get baptized and i'm going to have john talk a little bit more about uh, about them so i want to want to talk
1: about the anabaptists about. the anabaptists this developed right there out of from from swiss in the swiss reformation and uh, these people were basically our brothers and sisters. It's also called the um, the Radical Reformation. Uh, basically, Anabaptist means re-baptizers. Of course, they didn't believe in re-baptism because they believed the only real baptism is that of a disciple of Jesus who's made a commitment, has repented of their sins, and made a decision to follow Jesus. Then we baptize them by immersion. Now, their, their connection of that with forgiveness of sins was maybe quite as, not quite as solid as ours. They taught immersion of adults <coughs> after confession and repentance. They taught the Bible is the only authority for truth. They were very solid on separation of church and state. Basically, they completely rejected Christendom altogether. They taught that the church is made up of true believers and true believers, disciples only. They taught uh, that uh, a free will is required; that that, that our decision our, and our uh, attempts to be holy is is required in order to be saved. They were pacifists; they completely reject any involvement in the government or even being a soldier at all. Uh, they they taught kind of a prevenient grace. I'll talk about that in a minute. And they were restorationists. In other words, their philosophy was. We're going to completely turn away from anything that's happened in the past. We're trying to reestablish primitive Christianity, which is basically what the Restoration Movement is and really is, in a sense, our background. One of the things about the Anabaptists is that they were very schismatic. When we try to restore the exact New new Christianity of of the New Testament, one of the most difficult things is to maintain unity. Because the restorationist idea is to restore the things of the Bible, but the question is, what are the essential things? All restorationists believe we restore only the essential things. But here's the question: What's essential? That is a lesson of church history. Oops, I've only got a minute or so to go here. I better, I better move on. But anyway, uh, the, the Anabaptists were viciously persecuted by Calvinists by by the Zwingliites, by the Lutherans. Luther didn't want to. He was more gentle. And basically what the, what these Zwingliites would do, they say, you want to get baptized again? They tie a, a rope around them and a rock and throw them into the lake and drown them. And virtually every single person who was baptized in the Anabaptist church was martyred. All the early leaders were killed. But then just a few months in fact, baptism in the Anabaptist church was essentially pre- preparation for martyrdom. All right. Anyway, th- these were our brothers and sisters. Baptists by immersion, Bible, the only authority. Initially, they were extremely evangelistic, but they were so horribly persecuted. Within 50 years, they basically pulled back and they formed their own communities and they stopped reaching out. And they became the Mennonites, the Amish. We still have Anabaptist groups today but they almost completely lost their ability to affect the world. Mistake city, but I'm not going to judge them because I'm telling you it was do that or die. Michael Sack.
0: Okay. I want to bring up, I think about when you try to restore Christianity, when you try to restore the early message, it it tends to cause uh, divides because different people determine, well, what, what does that look like? What, how do you do that? Um, uh, what does it look like to restore the essential nature of the early church? And so uh, I have a feeling Dr. Dougherty will talk about that a little bit more as well, but let's um let's, I want to read this quote from Michael Sattler. Uh, he was being executed and he said, true believing Christians are sheep among wolves, sheep for the slaughter. They must be baptized in anxiety, distress, affliction, persecution, suffering, and death. They employ neither worldly sword nor war since with them, Killing is absolutely renounced. We are ready to suffer and to wait what God is planning to do with us. We will continue in our faith in Christ so long as we have breath in us, unless we be dissuaded from it by the Scriptures. I, you know, you look at history; it really looks like they were true disciples trying to establish the church. They didn't really up and move to the new world to, to sort of seclude themselves. Um, really, at first, they didn't and they they fought the battle and died for it, and that sometimes that's the calling um and it may again be the calling uh even in our generation uh let's close out with um a little bit more about um John calvin, and I'll have John close out just a few words on calvin here um as well as uh uh Armenianism and we'll close out with this. Two two concepts we 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 uh, as a church you'll see he'll share about
1: the bottom line is John Calvin the most influential theologian after Augustine before modern times. And really ultimately the Baptist Church, the Presbyterian Church, and Christianity comes from Zwingli and John Calvin. Probably the greatest commentator of the Bible in all history, an amazing scholar he wrote the Institutes of Christian Religion, which essentially became sort of the uh, the constitution of, Pro- of Protestantism. He developed the idea of TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved. These are the basic tenets of all Protestantism virtually. And it explains Uh, It explains why people believe in once saved, always saved, which makes absolutely no sense. Why would you believe in that? Because you believe in total depravity. And if you believe in total depravity, you you believe that only uh, there's a limited atonement, which is a damnable sin in my opinion, and therefore grace has to be irresistible. And therefore once saved, always saved. And that's the basics of Protestant Christianity. Arminius, Jacob Arminius, who was a Dutch reformer, who, he, he tried to throw out this radical Calvinism and reestablish the idea of prevenient grace, which is, it, which grace is a gift, yes, but it's a gift in which we participate. And, uh, and and uh, basically, if somebody ca- accuses you of being Armenian, you go, really Armenian? I'm, I'm not Armenian. I'm, I'm Italian. No, 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 Armenian, which means that we believe that that we have a role in our salvation, in accepting, and that God allows us to decide whether we will be a Christian or not. By the, way, there are Armenian groups, the Methodists are Armenian, and the Church of Christ, uh, and even some Baptists. Oh, I wish I could talk about the lead up to Protestantism and, and, and the development of evangelicalism and sort of the happy Calvinism of the 18th century and the mourner's bench and the sinner's prayer and all that. I don't have time to talk about that. Hopefully though, I've, I've given you enough sort of food for thought and, and you're gonna maybe read some books and who knows? Maybe even.
0: Alright. Maybe even you'll, you'll go through a study series on, on church history. So, uh I, Because of time's sake, guys, what we're going to do is we're not going to break out into house churches again, or I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do. We're going to close out right now. I will um, uh, leave the Zoom open for some fellowship if you'd like to. Uh, I'll even go ahead and open up the breakouts if you'd like to go into it, if you want to break, if you want to have a talk with people in your group. But I'm going to call an end to our midweek because it's almost nine uh, at this time. But I want you to, you know, I want you to right now just consider what surprised you or got your interest for further study. What what jumped out at you? Uh, that's the goal for you to begin to figure out how do you fit into the history? What, what doctrinal thing? What historical aspect, maybe some heroes like the Anabaptists or the Waldensians sparked your interest? And I want to urge us to, to continue to study and learn. We're going to get some great material in the coming weeks. I think it's going to be very practical. It's going to make sense of how we function. But I want to thank everybody for coming. So, again, we're going to close out right now uh, with a prayer. And then I'll open up the rooms. But this completes the uh, the midweek if you'd like to t- take off, you can. So let's close out with a prayer. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to just um, take a just a broad brush look at the history of your early church all the way up through the Reformation and begin to see remnants of really what we do and what we believe, but also others that we come in contact with. And I do pray, God, that we can see ourselves in the grand narrative, the grand story of your kingdom established. Um, And God, I pray that you will inspire us, uh, help us to grow, help us to strengthen us to know that um, uh, there's a foundation and that there are uh, pendulum swings we need to be careful of. I pray you will uh, guide us and strengthen our church through our knowledge uh, and through connecting to history. And, Father, help us find our place in Jesus' story. Uh, Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, God. You've just listened to The West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit the westsidechurch.com or laicc.net.